Welcome to Intercut Explains here on the Intercut Podcast channel, where we take a look at movies that people can't cut away from. I'm your co-host, Zachary Shevich, and joining me, he's here to see about these murders, it's Arturo Zurita. What an incredible performance from a dude who could have been in Nope with Jordan Peele, but he chose this one. Did he make the right choice? I mean, it's hard yeah. to say no when Martin Scorsese comes he calling. Brings you up? Yeah, yeah. And honestly, I don't know if he would have had a had a bad choice because that's an iconic role in Nope as well that eventually went to Stephen Young. But I was really you know, happy to see my man Plemons uh, show up when he did in Killers of Flower Moon. He pulls up with a hat just as big as a spaceship-looking <laughs> hat in Nope. True. So there's some uh, similar sim- cinematic there. similarities there as well. Some parallels. Uh, We are, of course, going to get into Killers of Flower Moon because this is the conclusion to our Scorsese-tober series of videos. We've been highlighting some of the works of illustrious filmmaker Martin Scorsese all month on the channel. Uh, Make sure to check out our talks on The Wolf of Wall Street, After Hours, Silence, The King of Comedy, and The Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, But what better way to wrap it up than Martin Scorsese's 26th Feature narrative film, Killers of the Flower Moon, a new organized crime drama from the master of the genre, predominantly taking place during the 1920s. The film, as well as the book that it was based on, centers on a series of murders in Oklahoma that were committed after it was discovered that Osage tribal land sat on top of extremely lucrative reserves of oil. This is a sweeping and sobering historical epic that seeks to document one of the most shameful elements of American history. And in many ways, the film serves as a corrective counter narrative to the many bad men movies that Martin Scorsese has made in the past. But Arturo, you think so? in some ways, what do you think of the movie Killers of the Flower Moon? What did you make of it? Outstanding. Uh, it's crazy to think that every time that we tune into another one of his movies, it's just wondering how much more he has in the tank. Like, and it's not even that of his creativity. It's just how limited we have with this man still on Earth. And it's really just time and budgets that are the constraint. But he has fine-tuned his voice so much that I think he hits on all cylinders here. Um, that's why I see uh, the comment that you made more as just him being able to hone in on the ideas that he's had in all of his previous movies from Taxi mm-hmm. Driver, where he's now on interviews talking about, no, he's he's actually bad. I know I made him the main character, and some of you really embody him, but, but he's bad. The Goodfellas, I'm, I'm not going to rename it Badfellas. They are not good people. Wolf of Wall Street, when we did our retrospective, was another big one in looking back about how many people took that movie as an inspiration to be a wolf on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. So I do find it interesting that we have this movie that even within the trailer tells you who are the wolves in the picture and it's telling you straight out that's not a good thing to be. He took the Wolf of Wall Street and he showcased it in this real life story which again most of these are real life stories that he covers mm-hmm. at all times. He just stripped back what we see in a lot of these other movies that kind of gets people to root for the characters. They look past everything that that they do negatively from from Wolf to Goodfellas and everything. But here, it could be because DiCaprio looks so ugly in the movie. I think uh, he was able to really dive into how despicable it is of of a story that is not really a whodunit, but how they got away with it. Yeah, uh, Scorsese has described it not as a whodunit, but a who didn't do it. Who didn't and do it, it. It does get to that sort of conspiratorial uh, nature of these awful crimes, the, the, these ethnic genocides that were uh, perpetrated. And, you know, I, I only say that comment about being kind of a counter narrative to Scorsese's previous films, because I think the thing that you're talking about, that he he's often so good at depicting evil men in these ways that are exciting, but ultimately like to discerning audiences are clear that these are not people to, to emulate or to root for, Yeah. but they still end up being twisted and manipulated by people who are maybe less discerning. You know, they're there. You mentioned the people who saw Wolf of wall street and then wanted to then go get jobs on get wall their street. Up. There's no mistaking that the protagonists are not the heroes of this story. There's not going to be a bunch of frat guys quoting Ernest Burkhart 
anytime soon. <laughs> these are these are you know objectionable people. They are in many ways kind of the personification of evil. And when Scorsese chooses to you know linger on an uh, uh, an evil act being committed, he's doing so in a way that I think makes it more clear than most of his films have that these are not the people you should be rooting for. And it it does 100%. really make for an interesting uh, setup here because, you know, there's a lot being made that we'll get into later about the perspectives being shown and who's being uh, 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 foregrounded in this story. But I think what's really interesting here is because you kind of enter the story in a lot of ways through Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Ernest Burkhardt, who was, of course, a real person, um, you are made to, to feel kind of like an accomplice in all these Mm. awful crimes that are being committed. The same way that sometimes watching a bank heist movie, you feel like you're in on the caper. This, in a way that most films that cover similarly tragic periods of history fail to do, I think this just allows you to to see the inner workings of evil. Uh, We talked about uh, the Zone of Interest, the forthcoming Jonathan Glazer film uh, on our previous uh, live stream uh, because you caught it at Chicago. And I, I hate to reference a film that most of our audience probably hasn't had the chance to see, but that's the film that this one really reminded me of because they're both films that are concerned with the, not necessarily just the evil that existed, but the machinations of it, how yeah. it happened, how it was executed, the the kind of ham-fisted pretty dumb ways in, in the way that some of these decisions are made. Uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio is not playing a particularly smart guy in this movie, but he is able to implement so much awful on, on, his, uh, on his world. I think that's why it's been very confusing to see uh, the different takes people have had, because the title says killers of the flower moon and i think that's completely embodied in this movie because uh, i like how you put it about being an accomplice out of all the characters within here from those who are victims to those who are the masterminds behind it all Ernest is the conduit for the audience it's showing you how a normal person <laughs> ironically named Ernest, can end up being swept up truly love the people who he's hurting but still being willing to follow those orders like the good soldier that he is. And I think being able to show you how it is that they got away with it was more important than the reverse investigation. Because I think this is a movie that, as we get towards the ending, does call out how a lot of these gory, violent crimes have been turned into content. They have become, you know, part of Mm -hmm. this true crime wave. And ironically, while he's calling that out, the people belittling it and how it's told wanted that. And that's the initial pushback. I think it's the approach to the movie that people are having. I 100% believe that movies where the indigenous people are the lead should be made. We mm-hmm. have a whole cheat code of uh, international film festival coverage that we have. A lot of people say that they want that. And then you ask them to name a movie out there <laughs> that has that positive reinforcement and they can't. So it's like they're complaining about something that they're not even seeking out for. And I think that this is a movie that does put eyes on these people um, because nobody would have seen those other movies. These studios wouldn't give these directors money, but they will give Scorsese one, and that can get the ball rolling. Absolutely. He uh, is taking an opportunity and I think doing the utmost he can to make something that, uh, you know, is is worthy of Very detailed. The- the story, yeah, it, it gets into really interesting details. I mean, I'm even con- curious whether or not a lot of the finer details of the story will just completely be uh, overlooked by audiences. I'm, I'm not surprised that a lot of the people who are uh, maybe not so hot on the movie are overlooking those details. Just to get into some of the... I think we uh, love it we're overlooking details. I think it's a, it's a very well-crafted film. Yeah, let's get into it. Yeah, getting into some of the plot details on it, you know, pretty per- early on in Killers of the Flower Moon, we find out... Uh, the p- evil plot that drives the film. The Osage people who have head rights that give them ownership over the sale of oil inherit those rights through their families. Will Hale, played by Robert De Niro, explains to his er- nephew, Ernest Burkhart, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, that in order to get money flowing back towards the European-American settlers, they need to marry into these Osage families mm. and then kill them in order to inherit those head rights. It's truly one of the most diabolical schemes ever put forward on film. 
film. In the book, this is something of a revelation that happens midway through, but part of Scorsese's rewrite on the story involved turning uh, this from an investigative murder mystery that centers the FBI into something that's more yeah. of a look at the inner workings of a deadly conspiracy that's been sanctioned by those in the seats of power. Did that decision with the story work for you? Easily. I've been hearing a lot of people uh, hearing about the rewrites the same way we hear about reshoots for movies and we automatically assume bad. Right. I implore anybody who finds someone complaining about the rewrite and why did they focus on whatever, ask them if they've read the book. I think chances are they haven't because if they got the original adaptation of the book that they wanted they would then be complaining, why are you making the FBI the hero? Mm -hmm. But again, I think it's that idea that people wanted a procedural. They wanted something where it was like the true crime movies that we know today. They wanted a thriller. And I think this movie's pushing back on that by going, I'm not going to make that entertainment. I'm going to show you the inner workings of how they got away with this because this isn't just about the Osage people. This is a scheme that happens in multiple places. A community that welcomed people. Those people took advantage of their land all of their essential services, and then kick them out of that land. Y'all let me know if that sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. It happens all the time. Mm -hmm. and, and I think uh, one of the things that makes this so unique in terms of how it is approaching the story is the way that they sort of depict Robert De Niro. He he His character of William Scary Hill, he, he acts like he's kind of like the mayor of this town and that everybody's yeah. his friend. He's so welcoming. You know, he's frequently will drop into the Osage language uh, and, and speak, you know, to sort of act as if he's this like great ally. You know, he's, he's the hashtag ally isn't of the that, Osage. Isn't that crazy? And, and in, you know, he's backstabbing these people. He's hugging them to death. And it's, I think it's such an interesting way to look at this type of evil story because, you know, it's one thing to depict people as, you know, films about slavery have or films about the Holocaust have as these like insane, you know, a terrible, uh, awful uh, sociopaths. But here we see the, the, you know, conniving sort of sly nature that, um, is so insidious, like they are, mm -hmm. he's able to weasel his way into a protected space and, and feel like he's like part of the families. He's literally sitting around as they plot how to uh, end these murders and, and offering up his own money yeah, even to try and- Yeah, tell me. Come to yeah. me if you got any uh, suspects. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, career like De Niro's where he's played so many evil characters this has to be perhaps the most evil amongst them and even him at the con press conference when he was talking about I really don't get this character it's that in all of the other ones they are characters you know in Goodfellas even Travis Bickle's crazy mind they are all people who do evil things for the people that they love mm -hmm. and what confused them so much for this role like you were saying this is a character who insanely enough does care for these people. Like that's what makes it even scarier. He learned the language to connect with them, but also because he knew that learning their language was the best way to take advantage of them. Yeah. This is a man who, who called himself a reverend. How? Like just because he wanted to be known as that, to be higher in their community. King. He's the de self-inflected yeah, deputy and then is called king by his own relatives. I thought he knocked it out of the park. And uh, there was a, a comment going around about how, you know, De Niro is one of the greatest actors that we have. But this man has taken some really bunk roles throughout the years in the past, mm -hmm. like, two decades, playing usually the dirty grandpa, the crazy uncle. And to embody it back in a role like this is insane. Yeah. I, I'm still standing with Mark Ruffalo as one of my favorite supporting actors. But he got scary close in this role. He had no business being as good as he was in this movie. Yeah, I, I'm gonna have a hard time choosing between all the amazing supporting actor performances. He understood evil, like he yeah. under, like all these characters that he's played. But to, ah, to it, do it, it also in with this. that sort of like affable exterior, right? Like he kind of does feel like he's in one of those like silly comedies in some in some uh, right? scenes. But he also has just just this awful. Uh, subtext to so all of his, his uh, motivations. Yeah. You know, and like there are pockets of this movie where the brazenness of it sometimes is funny. Like De Niro delivering the front is the front the and the, front, back the back is the is back, the back. Is hilarious. But it's also hilarious because they are just this rotten. They're these, this, uh, 
you know, uh, unabashedly evil. One of the things that really stood out to me that I think is why a lot of people are having a, a problem with it is the relationship between Molly and Leo or Molly and Ernest that we'll get to. Yeah. Is so paradoxical. And you see it with his character, too. Do you believe he loved the people? I mean, you know, love is like a really interesting word. Uh, obviously, right. I mean, we can get more into this in a little bit, but it that was, I think, the... Uh, the jumping off point of that pretty viral, uh, pretty viral, uh, question from the red carpet. If you remember that, uh, going mm-hmm. around with the advisor. Yeah. Christopher Cote, who is a language advisor, I believe on the film. Yeah, he worked on the um, movie and he was able to critique it. That's the world I want to live in. Yeah. No, I mean, I love that, you That's know, awesome. it speaks highly of, uh, the people involved that they would yeah. even allow this to happen. And but like, he like talk- a dunk. He talks about how like he doesn't view the relationships in the film as love because of how awful they were. And obviously it's not like a version of love that is admirable or or, like uh, aspirational in any way. But like in order for abusive relationships to exist, there there has to be the relationship. Right. And there is something to also loving something, but maybe not seeing them fully or or appreciating them fully. And I don't know if it's a type of love that I, you know, view as like a genuine or like true love, but it is a form of love in its own way. Yeah. And their messed up world, you know, he gets to the point where he feels that he has owed something because he thinks that what he brought to them, are gifts. He brought them, I believe he says, to the 21st century. And within that, he feels like he's ushered them into this new era and has helped them and has given them medicines, ironically, for the diseases that they brought with them. Right. Um, and I think it's this very twisted way. And I feel like a lot of people who are who are pushing against it don't realize, like, it's not meant to be commendable. It's showing yeah. you how his own love for these people can poison them. Absolutely. Speaking of. Yeah. Um Eventually, after Ernest and Mary have been married and had some children, uh, I mean, there's so much. Let me back up a little bit. Uh, I want to talk about how the movie handles the killings also, because there's a lot of violence in this movie, but I think it feels bleaker than how Scorsese normally handles death. Uh, They're shocking and they're brutal, and the camera lingers a lot after the actual violence has been inflicted in a way that forces you to sort of reckon with somebody having just died. Um, It's also shocking just how brazen DiCaprio and De Niro talk about who they need to kill. They do it so matter-of-factly that it almost doesn't call attention to itself as a big Mm -hmm. moment, which in its own way is chilling. Did you feel that difference tonally here between Killers of the Flower Moon and some of Scorsese's previous movies? Yes, he's not. I think even in the other ones, when we feel like he's glorifying it, he's just showcasing it in a way where he entices you from the perspective of those bad characters in the past. You know, I think of that very violent scene in Goodfellas when he goes across the street and he beats him up completely like overkill. And it's one of the most iconic scenes that the Batman tried to recreate, but they cut him off and they told Matt Reeves, you can't have him hitting that far. Here, because he's trying to pay more respects, which I I do agree with your comments, he showcases that, but I did have one issue. You rewind a lot of the violence for the Osage people, but when it came to the retaliation that happened to the killers, Mm -hmm. he would begin scenes midway through. You would see one person already kind of hurt, but you didn't see the damage done. You just see him crash. And I felt like some people don't like violence, and I understand that completely, but if you're going all in with the violence... I'm surprised he, I want to say overdid it, but completely showcased it for the Osage people mm-hmm. and then kind of held back. You know, you get one shooting that you really see from the opposite side, but I wanted him to go all in there. And I worried that it may be a, a case of he knows who his fan base is and they can see the Osage people, yeah. but I don't think they want to see that. I also wonder if it's a little bit more about humanizing the Osage people and not lingering uh, like not giving the same empathy to the people who are part of the conspiracy, right? Because the uh, maybe, but you got to see their ins their and outs. Way. 
You get sure. to see their ins and outs. To so see their killings, I think, would be maybe too much retribution. That isn't maybe. what people may want to see in the movie. To humanize them wouldn't be to see them dying. To humanizing would have been, what is it like to grow up in this place, to have had all that money? Molly's Catholic. How is she Catholic? How, how does that deal differently than the totally. other stuff that have happened in her life? Her sister Anna doesn't really wear the blanket that they all wear because she sees it as a target. What is it like to be her uh, when she's out at the town? I think to humanize would be to focus on them when they're living. And as I was listening to a bunch of the interviews, I think one of the standout moments where you really get to be like in that pocket of, of the Osage people is when I want to say they're at church and all the women yeah. are sitting down and uh, one of their husbands, Bill, is like sitting right next to them. And they're making that joke about like, oh, yeah, he's like a possum. He goes, it's like a possum with you. But with me, he's like a bunny rabbit. Yeah. They requested. They improv that. So it's like those little pockets in the movie that we can commend for really getting their perspective. It came from them. And I wish you would have listened to that a lot more because I think that's the parts where you humanize them the most. And I think that's why a lot of people have this pushback because they wanted to get to know these people. Mm-hmm. And I, It also yeah. speaks highly to Scorsese as a filmmaker that he would seek to include a lot of these moments, right? Of course. Uh, there's a, a wonderful speech that one of the Osage elders gives at that scene we were talking about where they're uh, trying to raise money in order to uh, figure out who's behind the, the murders. And I, I, one line that really resonated me, with me from that speech was, uh, "We didn't, we didn't pray for the great life. We prayed for life." And it's so mm. impactful. It feels so genuine. And uh, after the first time I saw the movie, Scorsese said that that was a line that was improvised. It was something wow. that the actor was asked to just sort of start talking, and, and ended up giving them so much good stuff they put in in the film. And yeah. I think. Uh, both between the rewrite that we alluded to earlier and moments like this, which uh, just allow them to exist as people. And uh, Scorsese sees that and decides that's some of the best stuff that they have. Uh, I think it, it deepens uh, deepens who, who he's trying to portray. Um, Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, there's limitations to that. And I think it's limitations that Scorsese would own up to and ones that we'll probably get into very soon. Uh, I'd add to that, that the people who he cast as the leaders were also leaders from the Osage people. Yeah. They weren't actors. So when you're seeing them like kind of get together and be like, how are we going to figure out who who's doing this? And how they're 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 breaking down what they would do if they found them. And I'm like, they're not even acting at this point. They're Mm -hmm. literally telling you what they would do. And then, of course, you have this snake, this wolf, this coyote that is uh, Uncle Hale disrupting the entire flow of it. Yeah, I found some of the ways that the film used its images to evoke the Osage people to be really beautiful. There's this disquieting motif of an owl, and the second time it appears, I felt like you could hear the pin pin drop in our theater. Like everybody mm-hmm. lost their breath for a moment. Um, you caught also, what they said, what it what it uh, what it meant. Yeah, exactly. That that uh, it means death is approaching, right? So like, everybody that's... knows in that moment, like. Uh, or at least fears in that moment for Molly. And in the second time, when it's the owl, and then the owl disappears, and who opens the door? But what's his name's bumself with Ernest? It's like, <laughs> yeah, those moments really speak a lot. And I think what you're saying is this is a movie where it didn't hold people's hands the way that a lot of procedural true crime movies do. Mm-hmm. They didn't have the person sit and give you a testimonial. They, you're supposed to catch on to their emotions, and because it's showing and not telling, I think a lot of people are missing the nuance within the movie. Totally. Uh, I, there's also that sequence when a character dies and is guided by her ancestors that I, I found extremely moving. I would say that if an indigenous person would have shot that, people would have liked it a lot more. But mm-hmm. my argument is that they would have not even have gone to the theater to see it. <laughs> what a beautiful scene. What a beautiful. very poetic way to showcase that. Yeah, and I I have to believe that that is something that's there after like heavy heavy consultation, given the way mm-hmm. that this film was put together. Um, do you prefer the cinematography uh, from Rodrigo Prieto here or his work on Taylor Swift music videos? Uh, I'm gonna say Barbie from earlier this year, oh, since okay. uh, this man's got a double movie going on. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm picking Killers of the Flower Moon, but it's such an insane thing to yeah have been working with Taylor Swift and having two feature films out. He said he worked on them back to back, and he, uh, he honestly kills it here. You were mentioning the different ways that they embody the people. He had mentioned how he shot all of the Osage people on film, but mm. then he shot all of uh, the settlers in this. Uh, 
autochrome type of photography, kind of showcasing the technology they brought in, something that is beautifully used within the movie uh, in terms of having alibis and such. But then he says that there's a certain point in the movie when an explosion happens. And in that scene, they switch out everything uh, to be a lot more saturated and darker. He killed it. He absolutely, yeah, he did a fantastic job with it. On top of that, I'm going to mention the score because uh, it's the last score by Robbie Robertson, uh, who also, I believe, grew up in a reservation. Yeah, he grew up on a reservation. uh, His mother was uh, indigenous. And he just passed in August. I will say, shout out his score. It is incredible. It's the reason I want to rewatch it in Dolby. The drums are fantastic. There is one aspect of it where I will say that if you are going to give it to him as a tribute in his memory, later on in the credits, there's also another tribute. And it said John Williams. Obviously, that stood out because I'm like, John Williams? It ends up being a a senior advisor to the main guy who they Mm. have going around with them. And he's like, that's my senior advisor who taught me everything I know. He passed during filming. Why, Why is he the third one into the credits? I feel like they should both be in memory of. I would argue if you're taking the story from these people, why are there no producers that are Osage within the movie? You could say that's the way the movie business works, but it kind of sounds to me like it's this rich oil of a story that you've got. Walk to talk. But maybe nobody wants to hear that. Yeah. Um, Just to move back into the plot a little bit. Uh, We talked about Ernest uh, and Molly getting married. Uh, they have some children. She gets insulin to treat her diabetes, which is really interesting that this film is happening concurrently with like the invention of diabetes. First of five. <laughs> uh, the town's doctors conspire with Ernest and Hale to inject her with both insulin and something else that's going to slowly poison her. And after she begins to feel ill, she makes Ernest do the injections for her. Despite knowing that the white man poses a threat to her, she mm-hmm. trusts her family because her love for those that she is close to is so deep and so strong. It's something that the film spends a lot of time focusing on. I think Molly spends a lot of the middle section of the film sick in bed And a lot of people feel like she doesn't really play a lead role in the film because of that, which I think we can use this to start start branching into the whole problems with Killer of the Flower Moon and problems, our problems with people's problems with Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, I feel like Lily Gladstone carries so much of this movie internally and so much of the film works just sort of reading what she's processing and what she's forced to hold on to uh, while dealing with these awful circumstances. Yeah. Like the movie ultimately even rests on her evolution in that final scene. To me, it's like not only just like a lead role, but like a remarkably acted one. She's so, uh, she's so captivating in this movie. You know, she's on screen opposite Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio, two of our most iconic movie stars. And whenever they're sharing a scene together, my focus is always being drawn to her because she's just got this energy to her. I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think it's like a really incredible part. And to me, also on my rewatch of it is when I really felt like Molly's arc unlocked to me because Mm. she's she is like somebody who has acted upon so much but she's also doing a lot of acting of her own in her way um i don't know i think it's a really really memorable role especially with the the book we were saying that it's split into threes the first chapter that would have been hers it's still the same arc I, i i i do agree there should be more you know of her backstory and learning like how she grew up there. Uh, again, I was mentioning the idea that she would have shifted into being Catholic. Uh, their kids, little by little, as the grandparents come in and have that very disgusting scene where they are uh, they don't see them as humans because they see them as tainted people because they yeah. have Osage blood in it in them. And there's a moment early on in the movie where they're talking about like dances and such, and you see how that's getting eradicated, right? Like if they were all dancers all the people who were dying or, or leaving or exiting, those traditions went with them. And there's a, a hideous character in this movie, the one who does the whole adoption bit where he's trying oh, to yeah. see how he can adopt kids to, to uh, be able to swap them out. Played by Louis Cancelmi. And too I think he's well. he's so good in this movie. <laughs> a little too good. Yeah. Um, this man has a whole scene where they're just like showing him dance. And I'm like, what's the point of this? And then you realize when you sit on it, you're like, because he's now the one 
doing his dumb traditions and it's his goofy dancing that he then does on his own when it used to be a communal indigenous dance and now he's spreading that and that's how they start dancing and that's how they're dancing in the saloons and those old traditions they've been wiped away little by little but again when people keep asking for uh, a different take and they rewrote her out no i think they focused on her as much as possible she was a third of the book and i would argue as you had said she is definitely lead when you have a three and a half hour movie and you're still in it for a whole 90 to almost two hours of it um regardless of her being sick that is a part of her story and what she went through and how she persevered from that that moment when she's dying in bed that she makes it down to washington dc and calls them out literally saying like y'all didn't appear until we gave you twenty thousand. but on top of that they don't appear until the explosion scene because that's when Bill dies, the white guy. She had said in a report that they were seeing the official FBI files, right? And in mm-hmm. looking through them, when the explosion happened, they didn't even mention the sister. And that's what got her. It, it, it's crazy stuff. Yeah, and it, that's the thing is that like, the, you know, we'll talk about how... Scor- People have had their complaints about whether or not Scorsese is the appropriate filmmaker to make this one. But the way his way into the story, I think, makes him really well suited to be depicting this, because even though this is a film that is giving a lot of space to the Osage characters and is trying to uh, do justice to them and their legacy, this is a movie about the wolves. This is a movie about the, the people who decimated this community, not the people who got decimated. And it is a movie that is unsparing in its depiction of how rotten they, they all are. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. It's like a, it's hard to really say that like the movie should have, changed what it's doing when I think it's so clear-eyed in in what what it's trying to hit. And yeah, yeah, that is a limited perspective that is not going to satisfy a lot of people's curiosity about this story. But I think it's a story that is very well honed for what it's trying to get at. And it's, as you're saying that these people are evil and they're buffoons that like, there's a lot of space given to just how kind of like stupid and, and, yeah, like how they they fall into great wealth and how they handle it poorly and how they are are lazy and and just sort of you know none of these none of these evil plans are genius in their conception mm-hmm. and they're executed really poorly. We we talked about the front is the front, the back is the back. The back. They can't even make, you know, a suicide look like a suicide. But they have people watching that too and they don't do anything about it. Like there are people who are also complicit in everything that's happening and they don't, they don't, they may not be the ones doing the killings, but they're the ones allowing it because they know that they're going to benefit from it. And like you were mentioning, Scorsese isn't the only one who has to do this story. He's just one person. I think people approach it as if like the Osage story has been said and now it's done. It's the same thing the author got, that he got a lot of complaints about who are you to tell the story? Who are you to tell the story? And the granddaughter of, um... Molly defended him by saying he doesn't have to be the only one. There could be more, but he was the only one who showed up and he was the only one who was willing to put it together. Absolutely. Marty's here making his and he shouldn't be the only one. There should be other ones. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, he focused on what he knew best. I wanted the guy from Goodfellas, Wolf of Wall Street Casino to focus on the people who I knew he'd be able to break down and be like, yo, these are the tricks they use. Uh, without even getting so political with it, a lot of people have been wanting to like, you know, call it whatever buzzword. But I like how you broke it down uh, at the beginning about how De Niro was so focused on on helping these people. Like he would have been that liberal who really wants to be with them, but in reality mm-hmm. was using them. Like using current buzzwords doesn't work. And I like what Ricky said uh, in bringing up the Tulsa bombing, something that I, I know they don't go too full into, but I think it was a really good juxtaposition to showcase like how this is happening in multiple places around the country. Like yeah. it's not just for the Osage. This is like a, a rinse and repeat method. Um, Scorsese had said, he's like, my my point wasn't to, to hide who the killers were. You're going to see them. You're going to see what they're doing. And when they go to jail, that's not the end because other people continue these atrocities elsewhere. Um, I think that idea of showcasing the KKK in the parade so subtly is that people don't understand that in a movie that's taking place in that era, they wouldn't have 2023 lenses. What he's showing to you 
is that that's how it was and that they were given the power that they had as the clan because they were welcomed in these parades, because they were seen as these high-class people. I mean, uh, the uncle's a mason. He's got a secret room in the back where he yeah. can spank Leonardo DiCaprio. And when you, you're expecting the movie to pause and break it down for you, then you're not making a Martin Scorsese movie. Marty can only make it and put you in that era the way he would put you in that era. Not with a guide, not with a uh, the, the clippy breaking down to you. Totally. And this is bad. <laughs> they want a Disney Plus disclaimer at the beginning. It's like, no, if it feels weird, it's because that's how jarring it was to be in that moment in time. Yeah, I, I'm glad we brought up the, the KKK moment because it happened so quickly and it feels like one of those things that may, you know, is it just there to sort of be like set dressing or is there something more? And, and it's something that I feel like if you're not paying very careful attention to, you might miss. But there is this sort of idea of like uh, that they use in the trailer. Can you spot the wolves in this picture? And it's a town full of uh, these bad, bad actors. Um, but among them is this guy. I, I couldn't find a picture of him in Killers of the Flower Moon, so I'm using That's uh, his picture from No Country for Old Men. Uh, this actor is uh, the the uh, guardian for Banker. Molly. Yeah. yeah. If you if you uh, it's one of those subtle or those smaller details that I don't know if is going to be clear to every audience who watches this movie, but because the Osage are are not. Uh, familiar with you know the the white uh, white man's model of the economy, and they suddenly come into all this money, which also uh, a lot of white people view as a threat. They end up doing these guardianship laws, mm -hmm. and you see uh, different several native characters. Uh, including Molly uh, Brown, have to go to this guardian to request uh, their own money. To have, they have to run their own finances by them and ask and permission claim to as yeah. incompetent. Exactly, exactly. And this man, who not only serves as her guardian, he's the guy leading the KKK parade. Did you so see the other one? Yeah, he's on the freaking jury. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it's so it's not the point that Scorsese is making in this entire film here is not so much that like Ernest Burkhart was a bad conflicted man who did bad in his relationship or that William Hale had this nefarious idea that got a lot of people killed. His idea is this is this is a town full of people who are all benefiting from the 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 planned and uh, well executed genocide of a native people. They, oh, yeah. It's they're all they're all uh, benefiting off of these uh, atrocities. Mm -hmm. When uh, when towards later in the film, after uh, Ernest has been arrested by the FBI, and we've had the whole trial scene, and Brendan Fraser has stood up like a uh, evangelical preacher and declared himself. It's great. They pull Leo into a room in order to try to get him to not testify. And who's there but every powerful white person in the town, including oil the heads people. of both of the oil companies. That was crazy, man. Because it really, like, it makes you think, who took that power in real life? Because people keep forgetting they question the script. How could that happen? It did happen. Don't question how. Asking why, ask why, you know? It's these right. people who... Uh, uh, who were taken advantage of. It's as simple as that. We see people get taken advantage of all the time. And it's just showing the cunningness of the wolves who took advantage of people who didn't know any better. Like, again, we have this 21st century mind of like, they could be caught on camera or something. It's like, this was happening in the shadows. They knew no better. They were the ones, while they had all the money, they were the ones bringing in all the technology. And in bringing in all the technology, like we mentioned with the being charged Osage prices for a funeral, uh, being charged uh, overly for a car, they had them all wrapped up in these luxuries that they were bringing in. And obviously that's going to be an issue when I've seen people discuss this scene and because uh, De Niro's wife in the movie cries a little, they go, man, I don't know. I felt too much sympathy. I wouldn't publicly say that <laughs> in a movie. That'd be like going, I kind of really relate it to American Psycho. That means it's a very effective movie, but I don't think that's the point of these scenes. And they are never supposed to be um we're so used to disney mustache mustache twirling villains that mm -hmm. when you get a little nuance in some of these characters um 
that's the worry for some people that you're humanizing them. And I kind of said this in the in our stream. Um, people are afraid to humanize villains, but you have to realize these villains are human. And yeah. in making that, you can understand why these atrocities happen because it's not going to be this big bad wolf. They'll look like a cute coyote. They'll look very subtle, and that's when they get you. Absolutely. Are there any last points that you want to address before we kind of dive into the ending of Killers of the Fire? Um, leading into it, you had told me that some people, and I don't even understand this, Zach, but uh, Taika Waititi should have directed this movie. <laughs> well, uh, th- there was somebody on Twitter, at least, who, who wanted uh, wanted a native uh, filmmaker huh? to handle this story. And I understand that impulse. But suggesting Taika Waititi... Rather than Martin Scorsese, I mean, we've already seen how Taika approaches a movie about a ethnic genocide, and I'm sorry, I don't <laughs> want Jojo Rabbit too. Yeah, I, again, I feel like a lot of the complaints for the story that they wanted, if they would have gotten it, you know, I, uh, Oppenheimer, the movie about Oppenheimer, uh, people wanted that to also get into like the jet, ja- the Japanese being eviscerated, and it's like those movies are out there. Yeah, go watch those movies. If he would have done it, you would have complained. Uh, in this movie, if Scorsese would have focused in a little bit more on the Osage people, I think more people would have complained. If he would have focused on the FBI perspective, people would have felt like he was doing a savior moment there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think he tackled it in the best way possible, which was to show you how the corruptness happens. Absolutely. Uh, it, I think he handled it in the way that he could have, right? Like there, This is a sort of hot button topic in in the world of film is like who is allowed to tell whose stories that's crazy is is a white man allowed to tell a story that is about the genocide of indigenous people and i think you know the thing is that like there are lots of different ways into a story and perhaps martin scorsese wouldn't be the best filmmaker to tell the story of molly uh, molly brown and how she grew up and how she aged but to tell the story of a vast criminal conspiracy uh, of of european american settlers and how they and how they operated i think he has a lot of insight to bring and doing it in a way that also ha- has uh an eye on handling the story responsibly that makes space for uh osage people and indigenous people to in the be conversation involved to and comment and yeah i i think he handled it in about like the best way that you could ask for particularly considering that he's able to pull so many resources together yeah. from this you know he conned apple into making this deeply sobering historical drama that's fantastic and yeah. it leads to an ending that i think you and i both found to be very profound, and I think answers the question and critiques that a lot of people have for the movie. Um, in the book, they talk about how uh, a whole chapter is dedicated to the Jesse Plemons character. That's who DiCaprio was originally going to play, and then in the rewrite, the great rewrite, they uh, found a way to go into the story by Ernest, you know, the side character, the people who could be the conduit into how you can be swept up in this whole killing conspiracy. Those FBI files were only there because Hoover needed Hoover, who uh, Leo already played in the Clint Eastwood movie. Right. Because the guy who ran the FBI, who put it all together, just needed more cases under his belt. Mm-hmm. But then to jump into the future to see a production, like what true crime is today, but back in the day, that is actually based and sponsored by J. Edgar Hoover. That's what he was saying in some behind-the-scenes yeah. stuff, that yeah. he actually read the files, and all they were doing there was, like, they took the transcript, and they did their little NPR show. And in doing that, he was showcasing how they weren't really, they didn't really care about these cases where the people right. were being let out early. They commodified them for entertainment. Yeah, something that I think is very purposeful is that when Jesse Plemons does roll into this movie about two hours in, by the way, you know, it's uh, forever before he so even shows cool. up, uh, that, that the FBI, even though they're the ones who ultimately bring Ernest to justice, they are not particularly empathetic to the Osage yeah. cause. They're, they're sweeping things under the rug. They're, they're cleaning up the mess and they're, they're yeah, they're going to hold a couple people accountable, but they're not even going to really look into the extent of all the crimes. They're, they're going to redress the ones that they're, uh, that are, you know, loud enough to be noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and I think, you know, 
as we're saying, you know, to to not per, not give him the white savior narrative here, yeah. I think is really smart. Uh, and then we get to the ending that you're alluding to, this radio show, which, as you're mentioning, it it was, uh, you know, in the early days of the FBI when they were trying to uh, increase their reputation, one of the ways they did it was through telling their uh, stories of, you know, uh, just justice-based conquest or whatever it is. But I think what's really interesting about you know, telling what is essentially the epilogue of the film through the means of an old fashioned radio show is it ends up being a comment on what it's like when you reduce atrocities into forms of entertainment. And those forms exactly. of entertainment might be true crime podcasts. They might be old time radio shows. What I'm saying. They might be three and a half hour historical dramas from one of the best living filmmakers. But ultimately when you, when you try to reduce a story that is as uh, meaningful and full of pain and full of real people as these ones are inevitably the people's humanity gets reduced into characterizations. Lots of times you end up uh, reducing people into like stereotypes and you're not able to fully get the, the lives of these people, you know, it, in showing, um, in showing, you know, Jack White of all people doing that, that the, was crazy, yeah. The racist caricature of uh, like an Indian style voice, it it sort of is a comment on the way that a native people or people of color who've had atrocities committed, their stories are predominantly told by the the white creators who are allowed to make those uh, mm -hmm. stories, make that art. So, you know, in its own way, even though it's Scorsese doing his best at this story, he's able to point the finger at himself as well. And I, I think never more poignantly than when you get to the last line of this film delivered by the man himself, no stranger to a cameo in one of his films. But the way he just sort of very somberly approaches the microphone, he doesn't really dress it up, and he reads... Molly Brown's obituary. I found it to be one of the most moving things I've seen in a film in quite some time. I think it's a man, you know, reckoning with the legacy of his art, trying to do, you know, do his best to make this sort of a dedication to the woman whose perseverance is the only reason the story exists in the first place. And, and, you know, in a way show that he's done his best to do this all justice, that there is no fully, uh, you know, fully honoring this legacy within the means of entertainment. And, but he, he made a really good shot at it. And honestly, like that more than most of this movie, that really made me weep just the sincerity of it. And maybe I'm a, maybe I'm, a, you know, I'm a baby or whatever it is. And I'm, I'm too easy, you know, easily uh, provoked into sadness by seeing somebody that I have deep perfection for. But I, I thought it was really, really earnest and, and beautiful. Yeah. And then to end it with uh, not just a shot of the Osage people on the fields where the flowers used to be, mm -hmm. but then almost enacting as those flowers with the same colors that you saw at the beginning. And, and having kind of you in the shape of a flower, too. Exactly. And having you sit there uh, through the credits with the rain in the background, which is exactly what her character, Molly's character, brings up earlier when they just sit there in the rain in that iconic shot that yeah. we got early on. Very profound as, he, as you sit there to really think about what it is that you just saw and reminisce. I, I was really deeply moved by this one. And even at three and a half hours, I've sat through it twice. It, it moved even faster for me the second time. Um, I, I would recommend if you maybe were a little bit uh, mixed on it, but, but not like completely uh, turned off by it, that you give it that second chance. Because I think there are so many details to uh, pay attention to and mm -hmm. pull apart and, and kind of dive into. I'd also... Highly recommend the audiobook or the or reading if you if you, that's your style. Um, I I found it to be an incredible piece of uh, nonfiction. So mm -hmm. yeah, I mean this is just a, a stellar movie. I'm sure we're going to be talking about it a lot more throughout the rest of the year. Easily and crazy country stars in this. Really good casting just all around. Yeah, I thought that uh, Jason Isbell was incredible. He was as too Bill. creepy. 
it was, yeah. it was like a small role, but he's yeah. really, really good. And I saw some people asking, yes, he was also complicit. He had his own thing going, and the only reason they had a problem with him was because he was taking a piece of the pie from the uncle. Exactly, right? Uh, uh, while we're shouting out actors who were in the film and maybe smaller parts, uh, I did want to give a quick shout-out to uh, Cara Jade Myers. Uh, she's, there's been a, a viral tweet going around about how uh, she almost quit acting. I thought they like leaped off the screen in their scenes. You know, Lily she also. brings this energy that uh, really, really serves as a contrast to a lot of the other people yeah. in the film. Uh, on top of that, uh, the action work that she does, because she's supposed to be a character who doesn't really want to be within their own tradition and is always out. So she's kind of got that old timey talk. And I've heard a lot of people, just like with the Brendan Fraser thing, call out their performance, not realizing, lean into it, understand why they're acting that way. Because they're yeah. both trying to be outsiders. Really good stuff. Shout out um, the guy who plays Blackie. Shout out the guy who, uh, uh, the one who's like, dang it, I got to do everything. The one with the mustache one who worked with the Moonshining, yeah. who gets in trouble. Exactly. What was his name? Ramsey. Fantastic. They they really took that man out of the 1920s. Uh, just good performances all around. An incredible movie. It's a must watch. Absolutely. Uh, any final notes? Should we should we tell Grace Randolph to, to read a book or... Grace Randolph did a review for this. It was so disappointing to see that she, <laughs> knowing that it was a true story, she was asking, how is it that they uh, went through this? And how is it that they did that? And this this lady was asking for evil to be explained to her. And I don't think that's what the point of the movie was. It's about how evil is able if, to get its if way. Only, if only a white guy could have come along and saved the saved day, the maybe day, Grace Randolph would have enjoyed it. I'm not sure. Hey, it's a long movie. There's different perspectives that you can have for it. But many times, a lot of the critiques aren't necessarily what the movie's going for. And I would argue there are those movies out there. Seek them out if that's truly what you're you're looking for. We have plenty of recommendations on our must-watch list um, from previous movies that have come out. Previous uh, movies even starring uh, Lily Reichardt from First Cow, which is one of our favorites. That kind of covers this exact same thing with the population there uh, of the beavers that they took advantage of and depleted that nation there. From the shorts that she's done from Little Chief to her upcoming one with uh, Funny Dance. So... Fancy Dan, sorry. This is the biggest movie that she's been in so far, and hopefully that allows more eyes to go at her for the people who are not just trying to get Twitter points, but actually do care. Uh, Absolutely. Hopefully it's a resurgence. Yeah. Uh, can't recommend her performance in this enough. It, all of them in, in, in are incredible in this. So uh, we only could talk about, I mean, we could probably talk about this for another hour. Part two. Yeah, maybe we'll have to do that at some point. Yeah, if you leave us enough interesting comments, maybe we will. Uh, but Art's got a screening of The Killer to get to, and we're going to wrap killers. this one up. Yeah, it's a, it's killer season at the, killer at the cinema right now. Uh, so that's about it for this edition of Intercut Explains. You can catch more from me by following me on social media at Zshevich or check out my videos on YouTube or TikTok at Multiplex Show. Art, where can people find more from you? You can find me over at LME Movies on all social media from Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff. Or follow me over on the main channel at Let Me Explain. You can listen to every episode of the Intercut Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Anchor. Uh, I like using Overcast. Make sure you're also subscribed not just to the audio version, but to the video feed as well. YouTube.com slash Intercut Pod, where we're updating you every week with Weekend Much Watch on Mondays. Please leave us a comment. We would love to know what you thought about this latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. What worked for you? What didn't work for you? What part made you cry? Uh... And also, leave uh, like the videos. Consider heading over to iTunes to give us the much-requested five-star review. Shout-out to those of you in Canada who are putting us on the film review charts over there. You can follow Intercut Pod at on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or our Patreon. All of them are at Intercut Pod. Also, check out the link to our Discord uh, in the description of this episode to get updates throughout the week from Art, from me, from all the guests that we feature here on Intercut. Thanks again for tuning in. And until next time, can you spot the wolves in this picture?